Welcome to Vincent Price's Live. Good evening, LB. Hello, Andrew. Welcome to this Halloween episode. Your hands are in my face, sir. Well, I'm just trying to creep you out. I'm more annoying than creepy, I know. Yeah. Okay, so it's that ooky spooky time of year. Yes. Meaning October. October. Well, we're talking about a Halloween movie, so it's... I mean, well, not a Halloween movie, not like in the Halloween series, but like a movie... Right, this isn't a Michael Myers laugh-a-minute jokey movie <laughs> either. No. Wait, that's a different Michael Myers. Dang it! Okay, yeah. Uh, what? This is a movie that takes place during Halloween. A time when the pumpkins are ripe for reaping, or something like that. I don't know. It's written by Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. This movie is something wicked. This way comes. Hellfire storms are coming. An electric storm to clean your streets and wash away your troubles. For every heart, there exists a wish. You ever play the numbers, Mr. Holloway? Me? Uh, never take risks. For every soul, there burns a desire. It smells to me like we're gonna have visitors. But never whisper your dreams, for someone might be listening. <laughs> and for every wish, there will be a price. For every desire, there will be be a cost. Three o'clock. They call it the soul's midnight. My name is Mr. Dark. I advise you to respect it. Dad, please be careful. I am pricking up my thumb. Something wicked this way comes. Then rang the bells, both loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. Where do you come from? The dust. Where do you go to? The grave. We are the hungry ones. Your torments call us like dogs in the night. And we do feed, and feed well. Ray Bradbury's fantasy tale of light and darkness is getting closer. Something wicked this way comes. This comes from Macbeth. Yeah. By the pricking of a thumbs, something wicked this way comes. You did it. Yeah, that's a witch. I'm not a witch, but that's a witch saying that. Being that this is Ray Bradbury, I, again, moved here into America in 85, and I didn't know Ray Bradbury from a hole in the ground. <laughs> okay. His works or anything, except gradually, television started showing me things. One of them was this. One of them was the show, Ray Bradbury Theater. Mm-hmm. And in high school, Fahrenheit 451, mm-hmm. which still is one of my favorite books, I even got that signed. Well, my brother got it signed for me for Christmas and didn't give it to me because he forgot. Because that's him. In January, he gave it to me and said, I forgot this. Okay. And I was like, but it, what? That would have been awesome. for Christmas. That would have been really awesome. But it's just kind of cool now. Okay, whatever. But it's still signed by him. It wasn't personalized. It wasn't like to Andrew. It was like, which is Ray Bradbury. Screw. Oh. Yeah. So I like how he writes. Yeah. You know the saying, the great American novel? Yeah. Okay. So Ray Bradbury, I don't think, has ever been considered a writer of the great American novel. No, he's not Steinbeck. They don't consider him that. Right. But he's considered a genre legend. Yeah. But a lot of his writing feels to me the same way as a lot of those writers who wrote the great American novel, like you mentioned Steinbeck. There's also Mark Twain, J.D. Salinger, F. Scott Fitzgerald, even like Ralph Ellison and Harper Lee. Like all of those writers perfectly encapsulate 
what it is to be an American in the time that they're writing. Okay, yeah. And Bradbury, he was, you know, I mean, like, his his novels are, they have that same kind of nostalgia. or The world is built in them. Yeah, yeah. So he describes, he'll describe in, in, in the book of Something Wicked This Way Comes, he actually does describe how the air felt, how the little town looked, how the leaves fluttered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he'll that's not just culturally how he writes like uh, describing a cultural time or like mm-hmm. a point in time in which but the moment of that time as well so he's got both culture and moment that he speaks about in the descriptions of his stuff mm-hmm. and it's all very wistful now when he writes science fiction it's future stuff but yeah. he, he speaks of the world and how the the technologies currently were, like Fahrenheit 451, they mm-hmm. have big wall televisions. And when you're reading that, you're like, oh, that's interesting. Wall television, like a whole wall being a television. Yeah. And now we're to the point where we have something similar, especially if you're corporate. You can have wall television, yeah. wall screens. For domestic, that's a little less plausible because it's still a drain on your resources electronically and whatever. But... Mm-hmm. We're getting there, and we don't really have a lot of books anymore. We have books written, but now they're through tablets and ebooks and right. stuff like this. So he builds the environment of whatever he's writing, and that's that's very interesting too. And then the culture surrounding that environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the way he writes is the word choices are so deliberate, and you just savor it. The sounds that these words make when they're together. So he's like a literary Eminem. <laughs> uh, I know what I know what you mean, but Eminem I wouldn't, I wouldn't doesn't say necessarily that. write words that belong together. He's even admitted to as such. But if they sound right together, or I could say Mike Doty, okay, from Soul Coughing, he writes nonsense that just strung together and bounces off of each other and then it sounds like a neat song but it's just absolute nonsense or maybe beck beck did that too but i don't think beck's ever acknowledged it <laughs> now right ray bradbury doesn't write any nonsense he's no nonsense writer mm-hmm. and he doesn't have a lot of fat in his stories right but he can write a long story like or... martian chronicles is pretty long yeah 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 you know but Something Wicked This Way Comes is a very efficient, spooky tale. Yes, it is the perfect, like it is absolutely the perfect tale for this time of year, for fall. We have a friend on Twitter, his name is The Mike, and he called it the fallsiest of all fall movies. Right, well, there's another fall movie that sidesteps the fallsiestness of it, but at the beginning it's pretty terrifying momentarily, and that's Return to Oz. Right. right. Which is like another American staple, the Oz stories. You know, these could actually be sister stories. You I could think. you could probably have uh, a double feature. Yeah, yeah, that's Return what I mean. Return to Oz yeah. and Something Wicked This Way Come being shown on the same bill. That would be good. Because one's literally for girls. Like <laughs> <laughs> Return to Oz's protagonist is, of course, a girl. And so mm-hmm. girls would relate to that story, even though I related to that story. I love that story, whatever. Uh-huh. I'm not sure how girls would take to something wicked this way comes uh, on a girl's perspective kind of way because it's two boys that the story is about. It's two boys, but I think that there are universal feelings. Sure. So, I mean, girls might gravitate more towards Return to Oz, but that's not to say that they wouldn't appreciate this movie. Right. So, I think Return to Oz is also a little bit by design. That's hmm. just how the story works. You're not going to find a bunch of Guys, bros, guys, man, I love my Rob Zombie and my Return to Oz. Well, you might. I don't anticipate people loving Rob Zombie, and 
something Wicked This Way Comes either. It's a different kind of horror. This is folk horror. This novel is the companion piece to Ray Bradbury's other novel called Dandelion Wine. Right. Which takes place in the summer of the same year, in the same town, but with different characters. And Dandelion Wine is about a kid. It's actually a bunch of short stories that are strung together as if it's a novel. You know, that character was based on himself. And these two other boys and Something Wicked This Way Comes are totally different characters. They're not related at all. Right. Well, the screenplay was actually adapted by him. Yes. And the movie was directed by Jack Clayton. Yeah, there's a lot of production woes with this film. I didn't know that. Yeah. Woes? Like, Jack Clayton was this old director who had done The Great Gatsby. He had just done that. Mm -hmm. Not just, but he had gone into retirement and he came out of retirement to do this movie. Mm -hmm. I know that, but what's the production woe? Well, let's go back a long time. Many years. Back to 1955. Twinkle noise. (laughs) Uh, Actually, uh, 1948 is when Ray Bradbury first wrote the short story in which Something Wicked was inspired. Okay. It was called The Black Ferris. And he wrote it with the idea to have his friend Gene Kelly direct a film based on it. Okay. So Gene Kelly takes the treatment for this film around, shops it around, you know, and he just cannot find funding for this movie. So they're kind of defeated, right? Right. And Ray decided to just turn it into a novel. So in 1962, he completed Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is the fully fleshed out version of this short story that he had written. I was wondering, okay, so the premise of this podcast, Vincent Price's Laugh, is we discuss Vincent Price movies, or we like to think perhaps movies that Vincent Price could have been in. Yes. Or maybe would have been good for. Yes. Or a film that he would have been in or a film style that he would have been in right. in a general sense. Right. So I was wondering, Andrew, what do you think about if in 1955 Gene Kelly had received funding to make something wicked at that time, if Vincent Price could have been cast in it? What do you as think? As Mr. Dark. As Mr. Dark or even Mr. Holloway? I, I don't know, but probably Mr. Dark. What do you think that would have been like? Good idea? No? That would have actually been a great idea. That would have been an amazing idea. Because what we have here in this 1983 version is British actor Jonathan Price. My name is Mr. Dark. I advise you to respect it. I didn't know this until watching this movie. was a tall guy. <laughs> I've seen him in so many things and I never knew that he was tall because it's just how he shoots like, uh, okay, so he's in Brazil. How that thing's shot is with all sorts of crazy angles. Wide angles looking down on the characters and whatever. So I can never tell who's tall and who's not. Mm-hmm. So he's tall. Vincent Price is tall. Mm-hmm. He has really interesting facial hair in this movie. He's got a good beard and he has a top hat and he's British, of course. And Vincent Price isn't quite British, but he has this theatricality that reads British. He lived in England for a while. So. Okay. So if that was possible to have Vincent Price now in 83, probably not. Right. Too old. To have a young Vincent Price around, well, he would have been right between being considered washed up and the cool, weird 60s stuff that he was doing. Right. And, I mean, I don't think he was ever too washed up or anything, but as far as horror icons go, there was only a certain kind of shelf life back in the day, and by the 60s, monster kids started being pushed out by hippies. Mm -hmm. That sort of pop culture with the British Invasion music stuff, that's when kids started focusing more on that than being monsters. 
kids. Mm-hmm. 50s was the big monster kid. Right, or 50s right. and early 60s, yeah. huge monster kid stuff. So Vincent Price's career was waning-ish. So it would have been perfect to put him in this role, I think. I think he would have relished it too, mm-hmm. Mr. Dark. Yeah. Well, who the heck is Mr. Dark? Let's get there first. Okay. First, after all of this <laughs> yeah, other yeah, stuff. Yeah, I know. Really quickly, though, Ray Bradbury wanted someone like Christopher Lee to play Mr. Dark. Which Vincent Price is a contemporary yeah. of, so I'd rather have Vincent Price do it because I can actually imagine it. Yeah. Christopher Lee, I can't. I can imagine yeah. him being too... Uh, formal or something? Not formal, but like unamused and kind of a jerk. <laughs> Well, this movie, okay, it, it is a story about two boys. Live right next door to each other. Next door to each other. One of them is only two minutes older than the other. Will Holloway. He was born at 11.59 p.m. on October 30th. And the other, Jim Nightshade, what a cool name, <laughs> was born at 12.01 a.m. on October 31st. So Will is just a couple minutes older than Jim, but Jim got the cool Halloween birthday. Right. Now, this they're kind of foils of each other. Well, they are. Will Holloway is the straight-laced... He's a character I absolutely relate to. (laughs) Because you would look at him and you'd think that maybe he's boring, but you'd actually look at him even further and go, he's not boring, he's just careful. And I was always that kid. Right. He's obedient. Yeah. He's wary. He knows, like, you know, don't really tempt a bear trap. Yeah. But Jim Nightshade is like, hey, I wonder what this bear trap does. Yeah. I know what it does, I just wonder. He's impulsive. Yeah. They find out that this carnival is coming to town. It's mystical, though. Yeah, well, it's a little bit... They note that it's strange because carnivals usually end their tours, I guess. In August. Like, yeah, like right before Labor Day. Yeah. So this one's coming in the autumn. Yeah, the autumn carnival. That's a little strange. Now, we went to a fair in East Tennessee. It's the Appalachian Fair. And I'm trying to remember if that was in the fall or not. And what is confusing me is, this is really funny, is as you're walking towards where the fairgrounds are, you have to walk through a cemetery. You have to walk through a cemetery. Yeah. Headstones, gravestones, cemetery. Yeah, like there's parking over here. You get out of your car, you walk through a cemetery. If you were running, you would have to dodge or hurdle (laughs) gravestones. Yeah, so... It was in the fall. No, this is a thing that I went to a lot as a child, too. Because we were visited by George and... George from Ouch My Ego. Yeah. Oh, he didn't like the swinging pirate ship, right? The pirate ship, ship, yeah. White knuckle for him. Yeah, it's okay. And for me, I'm like, oh, this is just a swing set on a porch. (laughs) So, yeah, I always have this confusion of, like, is that Halloween or not? It was kind of, in a approaching it, it felt a little misty, too. Right? Right. It it was just getting cool. Yeah. Coolness in the air. Mm -hmm. So, that's just, like, us experiencing an autumn carnival. But autumn carnivals never came around this town, except once in a very long while. Right. And I'm thinking it's one of those, maybe Stephen King read this and was like, hmm, once in a long while, it, clown, once yeah. in a long while. Also clown motif, carnival motif. Hmm, I wonder, once in a long while, let's say 23 years. Yeah, <laughs> 23 years. It takes 23 years. It's like a cycle. It's like a cicada. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because Stephen King, highly influenced by Ray Bradbury, in The Dead Zone, he has a chapter called Dark Carnival that has references to a lightning rod salesman, which is in this story. 
we'll get to that. And from what I understand, there are also Ray Bradbury references in Needful Things and Salem's Lot, neither of which I have read, so I cannot confirm, but that is what I've heard. My question here now is, do you think we would have a Stephen King without Ray Bradbury? Um, yeah, but he probably would have latched on to another writer's work. Honestly, that's kind of like saying, would we have the same kind of sci-fi that we have now if it wasn't for Star Wars? Mm-hmm. Or if it wasn't for Alien, uh, that lived-in looking environment, it yeah. would have eventually gotten there. So Stephen King may have eventually gotten there, mm-hmm. even though without that influence, who knows? Yeah. I don't want to have a "what if Ray Bradbury didn't exist" <laughs> <laughs> fantasy. I don't. I don't want that. It's too painful. Yeah, I mean, because he brought a lot of good stuff to us. He started this thing of ordinary people up against very supernatural forces. Like you can relate to these kids oh yeah like i said i totally relate to the guy with the glasses the kid with the glasses the dorky one (laughs) so this carnival comes to town and there's something nefarious about it well what i was saying mystical is that it seemed to present itself in a mystical way not Mm -hmm. just like there's a carnival but there was like odd lighting Mm -hmm. you could see a frozen or glass casket with a lady in it or something from the ground looking up at one of the cars and it's an open framed car it just seems a little wrong Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the people in the town don't really see it as anything out of the ordinary. Well, out of the ordinary in the sense of, what's this anomaly? This is interesting, but not out of the ordinary. Like, this is just scary wrong. Yeah, okay. Because they went to look at it, so uh-huh. of course it's out of the ordinary. Right. Entertainment back then, they didn't have TVs or anything. Radio, maybe. Yeah. And so what do you got? You got fun. So let's go. Yeah. Go. It's won a prize. Ride some rides. Prove how strong we are. Now, a lot of characters are set up in this town that have profiles that are somewhat archetypical profiles, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the school marm who was said to be a beauty for the ages when mm-hmm. she was young. Mm-hmm. But now you look at her and you don't know how she could have actually been a beauty for the ages. Yeah. And especially from a kid's perspective. From, especially from a kid's perspective. Because when you're a kid, you don't typically think your teachers are anything but some haggard old witch. I guess. I, I thought Miss Hammond was a nice looking lady. Remember, when I was three years old, I recognized that Linda Carter's Wonder Woman was a very attractive lady. I do remember this. This is one of my earliest memories. So, I knew what pretty was and I think one of my teachers was a nice looking lady her name was Miss Hammond and she was always nice to me too so that helped Mm -hmm. being nice to me helps you know I suppose so this woman she's older not that attractive yet she longed for those days where she was as you would there's the local barkeep who used to be a football star but he lost his arm and his leg in the war but he can still catch and throw yeah of course he would like to have his limbs back and retain the glory of his old football days right his youth his vigor yes and we also have the local cigar merchant who he really just likes money yeah he's the guy that wants money and then we have the barber Mm -hmm. mm-hmm Who's a virgin? The barber always talks about ladies, ladies of the world, and how it would be lovely to hang out with these wonderful ladies from all over the world, French ladies, Persian ladies, British ladies, whatever lady you can think of. He just wants to hang out with them all. They're very not obvious about it. (laughs) Okay. He fancies himself a Casanova. Yeah. He wants to be. 
Mm-hmm. There's some other characters in the novel that, I, I don't know, I think the character representations are a bit different and get a little skewed. There's a little bit of a difference in Miss Foley, that's the teacher's name. She still wants to be youthful. In the film, she is turned into maybe like a 20-something-year-old yeah, like, version of herself. You know, remember a long time ago the younger woman was sometimes she still looked like an old older woman remember yeah so she looks like she could have been like anywhere from 19 to 25 Mm -hmm. 18 to 25 it doesn't matter yeah just styled up in a way sure sure but a youthful exuberant version of herself yeah in the novel she's turned into a little girl okay so they switch things around yeah you know i mean so there's another character tom fury tom fury the lightning rod salesman played in the film by Royal Dano. Oh, do you live here about boys? These are our houses. One of which, as I listen to it, has murmuring timbers. Can't you hear it? Who tells you? Tom Shuri tells you. He's just great. He's a traveling lightning rod salesman, kind of a con man. Sort of. I mean, he inflates his prices as needed. Right. That's the sort of thing. And he has tall tales regarding every lightning Mm -hmm. rod. Mm -hmm. Just to entice. Yeah. And he sells one to Jim Nightshade, who I think Jim likes the idea of having a lightning rod, but he also somehow picks up on Tom Fury's, I don't want to say desperation. Need? Need, maybe. Like, of I'm going to help this guy out, and I know that he's kind of uh, full of it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So so he buys one, and mm-hmm. he gets told this tall tale about it. Mm-hmm. The oh, this lightning. one with the beetles on it. Like an Egyptian scarab. Good boy. But once the lightning rod on the pyramids of Egypt, trained for 3,000 years to pitch the lightning back to the high heavens, and it's yours for... Uh, how much you got there, boy? It's yours. Thank you. But he's an important character to the story. Yes. Tom Fury. So, when the carnival rolls in town and they set things up before they get things going, two things happen. The kids go spy. Mm-hmm. And Tom Fury walks by a window display. Mm-hmm. And in the window display, for Tom Fury, is an apparition of a, a desirable woman to him. And she's played by Pam Greer. Yes. Who's done up in a sort of exotic gypsy kind of way. Yeah. And... Hardly any skin showing, even. Pam Greer is, I think, extraordinary in this film. Yeah. She doesn't have lines, really. Well, she she has a couple of lines, but she is more of a presence in the film. Yeah. Whenever she's there. Mm-hmm. She's very stately. Yeah. Dignified. Right. And scary, too. Mm-hmm. Mystical and scary. Very, very beautiful. And she's made up so elegantly yeah her character is called the dust witch which i also love she's there to entice the men this is mostly men i mean yeah well there's only one woman that ever has something happen to her and that is the school teacher Mm -hmm. what ends up happening is the kids spy on on the goings-on behind the curtains Mm -hmm. of this carnival and they're caught 
by right. Mr. Dark, who scolds them and tells them to run off. But they come back. So they're very curious about what's going on in this carnival. They keep going back even after they're told that they need to stay away because they just really want to know what's going on. Well, they... it's Jim who's, he's got to go back. <laughs> yeah. And the other kid is like, no, but we got to be good people. We got to be good and obey. Yeah. Forget it. So he goes along. Well, then I ask you this question. Mm-hmm. Because Will Holloway is always scolded by his mom. Mm-hmm. And he's told at one point that Jim is a bad influence on him. Right. And I asked you, so those people in our lives that our parents would say, that person's a bad influence on you, but aren't we a good influence on them? It's possible. I mean, that's how I looked at Will and Jim's relationship. Mm-hmm. That Will wasn't just a stick in the mud sort of thing, but that Jim needed not necessarily a second conscience, but he needed a reminder of like the bear trap metaphor. Don't stick your hand in it. Maybe reel it in a little bit. Yeah, reel Jim. it in. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think that parents typically think of things that way. I don't know. Culturally, we tend to just think of kids negatively, you know? Yeah. So uh, Like even if your kid's a good kid, if there's an outside influence that you don't like, uh-huh. your kid is it's going to easily be swayed to being bad like that bad kid. So fear, fear, yeah, it's fear v- alarms. Very much a fear of corruption, of you don't want your kid to lose his way, so to speak. But yeah, that's a really great perspective to have the opposite of, well, maybe your kid's going to be a good influence on the bad kid. But I, I don't know. I mean, that's just my perspective on it. Okay. Well, nonetheless, they both go. Yeah. And they see something happen. So there's a bunch of strange happenings within this carnival. There's this hall of mirrors, you know, like a maze yeah. that is always shining really brightly. Right. And, and that's intriguing. Also, there's a carousel. Right. A very intricately carved carousel that is magical. Yeah. And then there's also the magical tent full of dancing ladies. <laughs> yeah. Well, magical because, you know. Oh. Dancing ladies. It's magical. And that's one part where I was like, oh, what? They have this in here. Because that's actually something that traveling carnivals did have. They did have burlesque shows or strippers even. Oh, really? Yeah. And this movie hints at that old information that was not really presented to us whenever we see like movie like Freaks or something or Freaks <laughs> or various other sideshow sort of things. We never get that little dancing review. No, not really. But this movie has a hint of it. Wait, Kid looking through a peephole. And then <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, scolded, yeah. you know. Right. Sorry, boys. Too young. Come back in 10 years. So the boys witness this carousel, and it's dark magic. So Mr. Dark is next to the carousel talking to this big dude yeah, who he, works at the carnival. Right. He's like his right-hand man. Yeah. And he gets on the carousel, and Mr. Dark turns it on, and it starts going backwards at a very high speed. And what starts happening is the big burly guy starts getting smaller Younger. And smaller. Younger. Until he's uh, like a six-year-old. Or maybe a five-year-old. He's he's really, really young. Mm-hmm. And he's somehow put into the care of the... He tricks Miss Foley, the teacher, into thinking that he is her nephew come right. to visit. Right. And uh, that's how he lures her to come to the carnival to get what she wants, which is to be younger as well. Right. But hers, she walks through the mirror. Mm-hmm. When she returns home, she does the final change, but... Mm -hmm. She loses her sight. So she's beautiful, and then 
blind, so she can't enjoy her own beauty now. Right. Dang it. Now she trips over everything. Yeah. So the other townsfolk who are notable that, that we noted before, the bartender, the cigar man, and the barber, they all go to the carnival as well, and they get what they want. You know, they're all turned back into... The versions of themselves they want to be. Right. So the bartender turns into a younger version of himself where he has all of his limbs and he's, he, he he's can He's about the kid's age, actually, yeah. now. He's about uh, 12, 13. Uh-huh. The cigar man goes to the carnival and he wins some... Uh, Lots of money. $10,000. Like, it's like a roulette or something. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the barber gets to hang out with all these ladies. Yeah, he becomes a ladies' man. It's kind of a harem thing yeah, happening right. for him. They all get what they want, but the thing about now I'm going to get into just really quickly uh, one of the themes of sure. this story is careful what you wish for yeah well be careful what you wish for and you know how kids always want to be older yeah adults always want to be younger like it's right. that grass is greener thing of oh it would be so much better if I could be treated like an adult if I could be an adult or you know if I could go back to being young and have my whole life ahead of me again and right so Will is the only person who doesn't want any change in his life. Right. Will is right there wanting to be who he is. Yeah. At that time. Jim, whose father went away, mm-hmm. hasn't come back. Jim wants to be about his father's age when his father left. He wants to be a man. Yeah. There's something, though, in the novel, Will's dad, Mr. Holloway, who is played by Jason Robards in, in this film, film. Yeah. and he does a really really great job yeah he's tempted as well he, definitely well he's a feeble man yeah he's got a bad heart and he never learned to swim and his son almost drowned to death and jim's father who was a heavy drinker nonetheless knew how to swim and saved will mm-hmm. because will's dad never learned how to swim because his dad this is also interesting his dad thought that swimming wasn't a masculine thing to learn right which is very interesting to note. Little interesting things about masculinity are in this film as well. Yeah. And that was the most, I was like, how is that? That's another time, man. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Holloway has a lot of guilt, a lot of regret. He's he, older, man. So uh-huh. he's going through, uh, I would say, a post-midlife crisis right. because he's a little bit older than midlife. Yeah, he feels weird because he has uh, such a young child for his age. So he's tempted to become younger, of course. Right. But he has this epiphany. So even though the carousel can change the body, make you younger or older, mm-hmm. it's not going to change your mind. So you're going to have the same memories that you have at whatever age that you're actually at. And that can cause some serious alienation between you and your family or your friends. Hmm. Because if you are an older person and all of a sudden you become a young person, but you still have your the memories of your entire life. So... What is the negative? What's the positive? Well, I'm saying it's negative because... So you're a little boy, but you have the memories of a 60-year-old man. So you have an advantage over everybody. Well, you have an, an advantage, but you, but you also, like, you're at school. Who can you talk to? Like, you want to talk about, oh, I don't know, poetry or something. Or if or, you're like Spielberg in his Twilight Zone, you go back to kicking the can and, and having fun. And we're like, so what? We're 60 years old, but we're also 8, and we're having fun. I yeah. mean, it doesn't have to be negative. But in that situation, you have friends who are experiencing the same thing as you are. Sure. Now, it 
this other situation, you wouldn't have that. You would have, you want to talk about... Um, so you're just talking about intellectual stimulation. Yes. That's the only detriment to this situation. Yeah, like you, you cannot relate to your fellow six-year-old because your fellow six-year-old is still, you know, reading at this six-year-old level or um, is only interested in boogers or whatever. Kids interested in boogers? What are you talking right. about? Right, so you're going to probably be lonely. Hmm, it's possible. Now, the flip side of that is if you are a young kid and all of a sudden you become a grown person, you do not have the life experiences that, right. that led you up to becoming a grown a, person. a big situation where you're Tom Hanks being all weird and right. goofy and like naive and look like an idiot savant. Exactly. So it's a totally messed up situation. So in both of these situations, the alienation that these people feel, either from anxiety or, you know, what have you, it leads them to going to the carnival and staying with the carny folk. Ah, become, so that's how he caught them right, become, corralled at the mm-hmm. end. So you become a part of the traveling dark carnival. Oh, okay. And Mr. Holloway realizes this. So he's like, whoa, I know. No, no, no. Temptation bad. Yeah. At a certain point, Dark goes into town with his carnival folk to to rally up the townsfolk to come to the carnival. Hey, basically flyering the place. Mm -hmm. Look at our strangely made up characters and creatures and whatever. And he wants people to just come to the show. That is a really cool scene, and it weirds me out a lot. There's some cool music in that that sounds like a funeral dirge. Right. Well, a lot of this, I was noting how it reminded me of Star Wars. However, I then said, well, Star Wars is based on funeral dirge. Yeah, I didn't true. use the word dirge. Right. Well, you looked it up or asked somebody who knows music, and they said, yeah, dirge. Yeah, that's my friend Charlie. So it's very reminiscent of actually the Emperor's theme. Yeah. And this parade, it reminds me of a weird version of a New Orleans funeral. Okay. And they're actually pushing caskets through, but the caskets are supposed to be for Jim and Will. They're small. Yeah. Kid-sized caskets. Yeah, because Mr. Dark has caught on to the fact that... Yeah, that's actually why he's there. He's just trying to feel out the town so that he can find those kids. Now, these kids have also spoken or contemplated speaking to adults about the situation, but they've already caught on to the age-old knowledge that adults don't listen to kids. Mm -hmm. So they're like, let's not even bother. But Will has a very good relationship with his father. They talk about things except for his father's impending death. Mm -hmm. Will doesn't want to talk about that ever. Don't talk death. Someone will hear you in death. And that's a theme that comes up. Mm -hmm. But Will's father finally starts putting pieces together about what's going on on his own. Mm -hmm. And so he notices how creepy Mr. Dark is. Yeah. And he avoids him. Here's about looking for two kids and he knows exactly who those two kids are Mm -hmm. and so he covers for those kids Mm -hmm. stuff like this Mm -hmm. so he becomes in a way a foil to mr dark at one point there's two foils to mr dark there's tom fury Mm -hmm. who mr dark wants information from about the weather actually because he sells lightning rods therefore he knows when the lightning's coming at least he boasts yeah and the spiritual foil is Mr. Holloway. Mr. Holloway. That's where we get the titular line from the movie. 
is this meetup in Mr. Holloway's library mm-hmm. where he's got the two boys and then they notice Mr. Dark's coming. Boys, go hide. And they hide on the top shelf of one of the bookshelves while Mr. Holloway and Mr. Dark have a sparring match of words and wit. By the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. Then rang the bells, both loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong will fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's a thousand years to Christmas, Mr. Howard. Mm-hmm. And then Mr. Dark kind of does his supernatural jerk face thing and breaks all the, you know, word wit battle and goes for the physical ailments. Yeah. Breaks his hand. Mm-hmm. Like, that's cheating, dude. <laughs> So from that point on, it becomes a battle of how are we going to overcome this dark carnival? The kids and the dad versus the dark carnival. Let's save the town. It is standard now. What you said is he's the first guy to do this sort of thing? Or one of the first to do standard town folk versus the big evil? Right. And that's what this is now. It's standard. But Jonathan Price is fantastic as Mr. Dark. He's very imposing and subtle Mm -hmm. and then broad when he needs to be Mm -hmm. or or, or brash or whatever. In this novel, Mr. Dark is supposed to be covered with tattoos. Oh. He's an illustrated man. Oh, which is a Ray Bradbury book, Illustrated Man. Uh Uh-huh. Huh. That used to be a big freak thing, the Mm -hmm. Illustrated Man. You have a man with all these tattoos and each tattoo, according to Ray Bradbury, would tell a tale. As they should. Like another person's tale. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, like it's oh, an anthology sort of thing. I see, I see. Now, I've mentioned Spielberg for a second or Amazing Stories here and there. Mm-hmm. I've been getting into this lately. It's been playing on one of these apps. So in 1985, Amazing Stories came along. Mm-hmm. And it was like Twilight Zone light with... Stories by Spielberg, directors like Joe Dante, Robert Zemeckis. Very interesting stuff. And uh, the first season in particular is about aging. Lots and lots of old people's stories. Oh. And what they can learn from younger people. Mm -hmm. And what uh, younger people can learn from older people and vice versa and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Since I watched this the other day and when watching Amazing Stories on my own time, it's like this is possibly like a big episode of Amazing Stories. Like very possible. There's usually no villain in Amazing Stories. Mm. But if you were to go villain, this could be like an amazing stories tale, which is really positive for this. Because there are always moral quandaries involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also like Twilight Zone as well at the time, 1985 reboot of Twilight Zone did something similar. Mm-hmm. Little moral quandary movies. And this one has to do with perspective, right? Yeah, I think that one of the morals of this story is our basic human desires or what we may be aspiring to are a lot of times self-centered. You know, I'm kind of talking about something that is maybe like first world problems, but not not exactly, okay? Mm. They're self-centered, they're very self-involved, okay? Which is old ultimately meaningless compared to the actual blessings that we have in our lives that maybe we take for granted. And I think that one of the morals of the story is that there are some dreams or goals or aspirations that you may have that are actually unattainable. And you need to possibly realize that they're a pipe dream. Now, I'm not saying don't try to achieve anything, but it's really pointless to think, oh, wow, I wish I could be young again. Or, oh, wow, I I wish that I could do this over. Because you can't. There are certain things that you regret 
uh-huh. that you have no business in regretting. Right. Because your lamentation that, oh, if I could only go back, one, you can't, so shut up about it. Uh-huh. Why do you got to feel so bad about it? Uh-huh. Especially if it's a thing that happens, occurs in nature, like aging. Yeah. You don't have any business lamenting it. Right. Just live. Mm-hmm. Be reasonable. Mm-hmm. You know? Don't be Uncle Rico. Right. I was going to mention that. <laughs> but I didn't know if you wanted me to mention Napoleon Dynamite <laughs> on this episode. But yes, Uncle Rico, Napoleon Dynamite, exactly. Living in your past memory prime, even though uh-huh. that was obviously pretty lame. <laughs> like, in the grand scheme of things, you're just throwing around a football, dude. Yeah, so, you know, it's just don't take for granted what you do have and work for a goal that is actually achievable. Yeah. They say you can be anything. Well, the truth is you can't. There are limitations to being anything, and that's fine. Can you tell we don't have kids? <laughs> just don't be disappointed with your life or how you are. Just work to be happy and good with who you are. Yeah, I mean, that's ultimately what happens with Will and his father. Yeah. And Jim, he, he actually gets it a little bit at the end, too. Mm-hmm. Like, he understands. He never fully goes and gets screwed up, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty good. Ray Bradbury writes with a tone of nostalgia a lot of times, except you don't have to be nostalgic for it to understand the tone and the appreciation he has for that time. Yeah. And it doesn't ring false. It's not like a, you were a 90s kid if listicle. Yeah. So it's more... It's an Americana that is a universal experience. For the small town, for the most part, small town. Yeah. No, I get really sad watching this movie now because I miss fall. Oh, yeah. A lot. We live here in South Texas now. There is no fall. There's Yeah, there's no fall. There's one season. It's going to be 97 degrees this weekend, and it's October. We don't see pumpkin patches. No, we see fields with burrows hanging out. No. <laughs> They're cute. So I get nostalgic for just having autumn and leaves and all that stuff. Yeah, and I've only had autumn and leaves for a small portion of my life. Well, yeah, for small moments in my life, like two or three year stretches <laughs> have I had fall and I really, really appreciated it. Uh-huh. And then I always end up moving to some place that doesn't have it. <laughs> Great, thanks. But all that nostalgia stuff aside... This movie, I mentioned that Dark broke Mr. Holloway's hand. It's not just that he broke his hand. You see him crush his hand and his hand split open and there's a little bit of gore. Oh, right. So there's another scene in which the kids are attacked by a bunch of tarantulas. Yeah. Intense. Especially for an early 80s Disney film. Mm -hmm. Disney was trying to get away from being this like uh, animation figurehead. And in the early 80s, it started doing live action movies that were a little bit different than what they had before. I mean, what? It's like that darn cat and Freaky Friday, Herbie and stuff. Yeah, they ended up doing with Paramount a team up and they did one of the hardest fantasies I've ever seen that's rated PG. Uh Has virgin sacrifices, has gore. It is Dragon Slayer. Oh, yeah. And that thing, it also has nudity in it uh-huh, like a uh-huh. skinny dipping scene where you see the full tackle and everything yeah i'm like what rated pg <laughs> mayhem what 
Another one that has a darker, like, nihilistic tone where everything ends in a big crash is Black Hole. Uh-huh. So I'm like, man, this stuff feels dark. Like, right. Disney was going through some uh, growing pains, I think. Yeah, stuff that I think more people have seen. Uh, we mentioned Return to Oz earlier. That was a Disney production. Uh, Which was freaky. Yeah, The Black Cauldron. Dark. That was early Tim Burton work. He worked on some ghouly characters. Right, and this film. But the thing was, Disney thought some of this stuff in this film was a little bit too dark. Okay. So they wanted rewrites. No. Do you rewrite Ray Bradbury? You talk to him about it, maybe, but then you go, yeah, probably not. Right. But Disney forced the director, Jack Clayton, to hire some other guy to do some rewrites. Oh, no. And he did not get credit. I don't even know his name. Mm. But Ray Bradbury, of course, kind of fell out of the production at that point. No. There were a lot of changes at that point that Disney had insisted upon like re-edits, re-scoring like I don't know what the original score was for this film but hmm. the stuff that we talked about earlier yeah. was not what the huh. original score was. So that was. might be why it was so similar to the Star Wars thing. Well it's dark. That's the right. Emperor, Imperial <laughs> theme. It's dark. It sounds foreboding. Right. It does. I mean it's, it's a testament to John Williams that he made this dark catch-all theme right, for right. bad guy. Yes. You know? <laughs> it's similar so. There also was a lot of CGI work in this movie that was cut out. What do you mean? The scene with the spiders Yeah. was not originally in the film. Huh. What it was originally was a giant hand reaching into the house and plucking the boys out of it. Whoa. I don't know if they needed to do that CG. They could have done it all practical. It would have looked like a giant rubber King Kong hand, probably. Mm-hmm. But they could have really gotten the Imagineers to do it a good job on it, I think. Maybe so. Some other CG that was cut out, the carnival train coming to town was supposed to be a big CG moment. Now, CG in 1983 wasn't heard of very often. They did Tron that had a lot of CG in it, but it's very vector-based. It's very, has gradations and it doesn't really look real. Yeah. That's why they shot it in the black and white in the way that they did so Uh that it looked feasible for these live-action characters to be in this CG environment. Mm Mm-hmm. CG in 1985 was the first major time when it was used was with uh, Spielberg's produced Young Sherlock Holmes, mm. where the stained glass comes to life. It's a night, and it's actually really good. Still, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And it's so old. Probably took months to actually get that animation to be finalized. I can't really imagine what Disney thought was too dark at the time, because what this film turned out to be is pretty dark. Mm-hmm. You know, so I wonder what it was originally and how, like, maybe thematically was was darker. Maybe there was more gore in it or something. Maybe. I, yeah, who knows? Oh. Right. I know I dang well winced when he broke his hand to pieces. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wish more kids' movies were willing these days to go to that dark place. I think it's important for children to experience... Stakes? Stakes, yes, for one. And certain adult themes that they can uh, start picking up on, like death or despair or regret. Learning how to cope with things. Yes, exactly. So. We had these movies when we were kids, like Something Wicked, like uh, Never Ending Story, Return to Oz. Geez, so Never Ending Story's big thing is is grief. Right. He doesn't have a mom, Mm -hmm. and he's trying to cope with just being an only kid with his dad. Mm -hmm. And he's in those throws, but then you have the story at certain elements, the big nothing and Mm -hmm. depression 
coming and taking away the imagination and then the, the horse dying is Ugh. the biggest grief and it kills you every yes. time. So, I mean, it's a very important movie in that uh-huh. sense of learning about these themes, about these uh-huh. ideas and uh-huh. and maybe getting past them. Right. And we have movies today. There are, you know, there are important themes in children's films these well, days. Well, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, in fact, has the whole, he was your father, but he wasn't your daddy. Yeah. You know, that's, that sort of... That's a big example. I mean, even stuff like Zootopia and Inside Out, you know, they have these things that are important for children to learn, but they're not presented from this, this space of darkness. Inside Out kind of almost gets there with the, the weird imaginary character. That stuff is actually where that is. Oh, right. That's true. Right? It, it teeters. It tiptoes really close to it, whereas Zootopia is, is a bit more held back, and it's, it's them, themes of tolerance and so on. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it doesn't really get dark. Right. And maybe these films need to get dark. A little disturbing, but the climate does not allow for any kind of disturb. You, you don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. You don't want to ruffle anybody's bed sheets or, or linens hanging out. Ah, you, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. you just want them to just drop. Mm-hmm. Don't ruffle them, but the ruffles... Sometimes it, it helps. It can benefit us. I mean, I think it benefited me. I'm picking up that you think that it benefited you. Yeah, I really think it did. But we're also serial killers, so... <laughs> We're not serial killers. <laughs> unless you're talking about raisin bran, because I could kill me a bowl right now. Two scoops of raisins. <laughs> so Something Wicked This Way Comes, very important watch, I believe. Uh, important read, too, if you're the reading type. It reads very similarly, being that they're both by the same person. So <laughs> Yes, and you should check out other things that Ray Bradbury's written as well. He's great. So thank you, everybody, for listening to our show once again. Please check us out on the internet, on the social medias. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter. Please go to iTunes, like, subscribe, give us a rating and a review. That would be really awesome. You can go to ouchmyego.com and see all of our podcasts and see what's happening in and around the Rio Grande Valley. Until next time. Goodbye, everybody. Good night. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by Ouch My Ego. Visit ouchmyego.com. Blah, 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 blah.